now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A uh, great day for talking about the fact that our politics has gotten so needlessly nasty. Uh, there are a number of people who are just lamenting the fact that we have so many, many people out there who are just as negative as they could possibly be. Uh, there is a claim by a leading voice on the left that uh, people who support Donald Trump are stupid, uh, ignorant, and nefarious. Uh, that's a ridiculous thing. The, the whole idea of attacking Trump is entirely appropriate, it seems to me, as a candidate for president. You can say nasty things about him, but don't write off all the people who support him. It's not a way to persuade. It's not a way to win. It's not a way to bring our country together. There is also a uh, great deal of controversy about a comment that was made yesterday on the House floor and people are outraged about it. I understand that. And I know that Eli Crane, the congressman from Massachusetts, uh, pardon me, from Arizona, who is a Republican, former Navy SEAL. He's a first-term congressman. He used the phrase, in the midst of heated debate, you'll hear it. He used the phrase, you'll pardon me here, and I'm only using this to quote. I'm not using this. This is not my choice. I don't want to get in trouble for using the phrase, colored people. Uh, and uh, again, he has expressed his regret. He has, uh, they have gone ahead and actually changed the record. So in the congressional record, it doesn't say that. It says people of color, not colored people. Is there a difference between people of color and colored people? Sure. One is acceptable. One is not. Why is that? We will get into that. Speaking of things that are acceptable and not, uh, Men are lost. There is a big piece in the Washington Post by Christine Emba, who is going to be joining us. Uh, and she not only talks about why men are lost, but she offers a path out of the wilderness. We'll also be speaking later today to Joe Concha, who says that uh, not debating is a bad look strategy for Joe Biden and for President Trump. And uh, we'll also talk to Ian Bremmer, uh, international expert on diplomatic relations and a futurist about the future of NATO and the conclusion of President Biden's speech. I know that what has been getting a great deal of attention concerning President Biden's uh, speech and his whole mission to Helsinki is... Um, he was uh, in a line of people who were shaking his hand and taking photographs, and he sort of reached in. There was a cute little girl who was being held in her mother's arm. And uh, the, the entire clip, which has gone wildly viral, shows the president of the United States um, reaching in and kind of biting her. Uh, it, it's It's strange. Uh, it's, it's not a bite that would hurt her. It's the kind of thing you'd do with a grandchild who was very young, maybe two or three years old and kind of, but, uh, Mr. President, no international incidents, please in Helsinki. And he doesn't need, uh, any more focus on, uh, quirks, especially after such a, uh, important, 
mission as the one that he ran in uh, uh, in Finland and in Lithuania for the meeting of NATO. Uh, there, there's also uh, going on right now a leadership summit. Um, uh, it's called uh, organization is called Family Leader in Iowa, which is a leading Christian conservative organization in Iowa, and they have eight. Uh, candidates for president uh, from the Republican Party who are speaking to this group. They're being interviewed by Tucker Carlson, uh, even as we speak. And uh, Tim Scott uh, was one of the people who was uh, speaking uh, there with uh, Tucker Carlson. And uh, he uh, uh, was asked, uh, about sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. This is clip number one. And the interchange with the former Fox host uh, sounded like this. Where are you on, on the matter of sending cluster bombs to the Ukrainian military? Well, if I was president of the United States, we wouldn't have to. Here's what you saw. But, as... but now that we have, what do you think of it? Well, I mean, I think they're, they're there. So here's what I would suggest is... That... Well, they're not. I don't think they're there yet. Do well, you they... think that we should send them? I think that the mistake is... When you have President Biden saying to the world that here are a host of weapons that we no longer have the ammunition to supply, and you have a request coming from Ukraine saying we need more of the weapons that you say you don't have to, to, to provide, as opposed to keeping top secret information in your closet, you go to the front pages of every news station, you go to the screens and President Biden says to the world, we don't have the ammunition. And so what you see from Ukraine is, is they send the cluster bombs over. Under my administration, we would have the resources and a defense industrial complex that provides the weapons that we need and our Western allies need. We wouldn't be in this position at all. Do you think he should send them? I wouldn't have to. He already has agreed to do so. Okay. Uh, the, uh, uh, it does sound like he's dodging the question uh, a little bit. Uh, there was a series of votes on the House floor yesterday and uh, votes uh, about Ukraine and Ukraine policy. And they were decisive. Uh, and they showed that a, an overwhelming majority of the Republican Party and uh, a unanimous votes on the Democratic side uh, against a series of amendments that were introduced by Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, by Matt Gates of the Freedom Caucus, uh, they uh, were amendments that called for cutting back aid to Ukraine. And uh, the, the highest number of votes they got for any of them still did not represent a majority, even on the Republican side. And this is a, actually, I think, a, a big relief to a lot of us who are concerned about the Republican Party taking a side when the struggle is so clearly, and it does seem to me very clearly, between good and evil with what is going on in Ukraine. And uh, the idea that right now they have Tucker Carlson uh, basically asking um, the questions for this uh, Iowa series of fireside chats, they're describing it. He's talking to each of the candidates uh, separately. That's why it's not a debate. The only major candidate who's not there is uh, is Donald Trump. And uh, 
Meanwhile, uh, this from The Hill, five House Republican-backed initiatives to curtail aid to Ukraine using the annual Pentagon policy bill were shot down yesterday afternoon in votes that saw a consensus from both sides of the aisle to keep money flowing to Kyiv. The Ukraine-related amendments to the National Defense Authorization Act would have effectively limited or rolled back U.S. involvement in Ukraine, but a majority of Republicans joined all the Democrats in opposition to the proposals. Uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Republican Georgia, put forth one amendment to strike $300 million in Ukraine funding. That amendment failed, 89 to 341, with 130 Republicans joining all Democrats and voting against it. In other words, the vote among Republicans was 130 to 89. Another proposal from Representative Matt Gates, Republican Florida, which would have prohibited all security assistance for Ukraine, failed even more lopsidedly. It got only 70 votes on the House floor with 149 Republicans opposing it. In other words, it was more than two to one. And this should be an indication of where we're going. Where we're going is to the uh, a writer, brilliant writer, based on the evidence of this article, named Christine Emba, writing about men are lost, how can they find themselves, and more. Coming up on The Michael Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. Medved show, uh, there is a column uh, that just appeared in the Washington Post. It's actually a, a actually a very substantive article, not a column. Uh, but it's by the author of a provocative new book. The new book is called Rethinking Sex, a Provocation. Uh, the writer is Christine Emba, who joins us now. And uh, basically, her new piece in the Washington Post says men are lost here's a map out of the wilderness what evidence do we have that men are lost christine hi thanks for having me oh, great pleasure um, yeah unfortunately the evidence is is kind of piling up um so there have been huge changes in the economy and society over the past 20 to 30 years and they're really sinking in and seeming to hit younger men especially the hardest. So if you look at college graduation rates, uh, for every 100 women who graduate with a bachelor's degree, only 74% um, only 74 men do. Uh, when you look at who's dying of you know deaths of despair, sort of drug addiction, alcohol-related death, or suicide, three out of every four deaths of despair is a man. Um, when you look at whose wages are rising in the U.S. and whose wages are stagnant, women have come a long way, partially just the result of women being let into the economy. But for men, especially working-class men, wages have stagnated over the past 30 years or even fallen. And so that's leaving a lot of men, but especially young men, I think, feeling really confused about where they stand in society what it means to be a man if they're not able to be, you know, the provider, the protector, if women are doing it on their own. Um, and it's leaving them 
prey to a lot of bad influences. Well, you one of the points that you make that I think is going to resonate with a lot of people is that men and women are different. And it should not be a social goal to make uh, people the same, to erase gender differences. One of the things you say toward the end of your piece where you're giving the roadmap out of the wilderness, you say, in my ideal, the mainstream could embrace a model that acknowledges male particularity and difference, but doesn't denigrate women to do so. It's a vision of gender that's not androgynous, but still equal and relies on character, not just biology. Uh, what's the difference here between character and biology? Yeah, this is, this is something that a lot of people have pulled out of this piece and have questions about. Um, so if you wanted to push back to this piece, this idea that we need to kind of rethink masculinity, rethink manhood in this new age, the pushback is that people are saying, well, we don't need to talk about just being a good man. We should just all be good people. And, you know, I write about this in my book, Rethinking Sex, especially when it comes to thinking about how to be good and ethical in sexual relationships. Of course, we should all be good, but we also have to realize that, you know, biology is real, that being embodied as a man uh, is different than being embodied as a woman. And our culture still has kind of scripts for both the sexes, too. And so what being a good person, you know, an ethically good person, um, a person of good character is as a man, you know, will probably look different than exactly what it is to be a woman. And that's okay. But that's something that we need to acknowledge to get to the truth of it. And also when we're talking about being good, that means we are relying, you know, on character. It's not enough to say, you know, oh, well, men have a lot of testosterone and so boys will be boys. They'll just do what they want because they're men. Like, that's not an excuse, actually. Just the fact that men may be different in some ways doesn't allow them to get away with more things. But what does it look like to be, you know, a virtuous person, a responsible person, a kind and caring person in the context of existing as a man in the world? So I think we have to both acknowledge the sort of biological differences between the sexes, but also not give them too much say, still ask people to live up to a higher standard. And that's the core to being a good man or woman. And if you're doing that, there are many different ways to be a good man. Okay, what what are some of the paths that lead out of the wilderness that you describe? And how can women... Uh, help lead men on those paths out of the w the wilderness? That's also a great question. Um, I mean, the first and most obvious one to me is just by role models. So a lot, I interviewed a ton of young men for this piece, and so many of them, you know, were asking this question, well, like, how do I, what is manhood anyway? How do I be a man? Because you know, they said that they didn't really have father figures in their lives. They didn't have good relationships with their dads or their dads weren't in their life. They didn't really have anyone to look up to. And so they ended up, you know, going on the Internet and finding like Andrew Tate or something who <laughs> at least provides a solution. It's not a good one, but at least it's an answer. And so I think one of the paths out is for older men and I mean, even some younger men who have a clearer sense of self who see their younger counterparts 
struggling, who see their friends struggling, to to step up, to take a younger guy under your wing, to model masculinity, um, and you know, be there, be open about talking about this. Um, and then, of course, you ask the role that women can play, and I think that's actually a really kind of touchy one for a lot of people, but I think it's really important. One of the reasons I think why men have begun to feel um, kind of disoriented and resentful in our society, too, is that... Superfluous is a word that comes to mind, but go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, no, superfluous. I mean, definitely, because, yeah, women can have jobs. They can even have babies by themselves, like using artificial reproductive technology. But I think especially in progressive spaces, unfortunately, there's been this overuse of accusation. Like you hear the phrase toxic masculinity a lot. Like if, if it's masculine, it must be bad. Or like it's, it's kind of funny and like some leftist circles joke that, you know, men are trash. Like what are men even for? Yeah, and, I, I've never you know, heard the term toxic femininity. Nobody's ever said that. Right, right. And, I mean, women can be toxic, too, (laughs) for sure. That's the next article. That's a great title. (laughs) Yeah, women are lost, too. Um, But I think that, you know, women also have to be empathetic to men's problems. Um, It's not a zero-sum game. If we pay attention to men, it doesn't mean that we stop paying attention to women. And, in fact, both sexes need each other to thrive. And uh, we we are going to post your terrific piece, which is full of provocation and uh, and illumination. Actually, uh, the uh, Christine Emba is the author of "Men Are Lost." Here is a map out of the wilderness, and uh, it doesn't seem just like a wilderness. It seems a little bit like a maze. Uh, if you believe that the height of masculinity is having a few brewskis and playing a few active shooter video games, this piece probably isn't for you. Otherwise, check it out. It's at michaelmedved.com. We will be right back on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. Isn't that interesting? The Michael Medved Show. This is so cool. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, there is a, a great tendency on the part of Americans to amplify every disagreement and to make every disagreement about policy or about values or, I mean, about everything even about uh, the the movies that you might want to come out and like. Well, which which do you like better, the new Indiana Jones movie or Barbie? Or are you waiting to see Oppenheimer or uh, um, uh, the Mission Impossible? Whatever it is, the, the tendency to insult people with whom you disagree is, uh, to use a word that we were talking about with Christine Emba, it's toxic. It's it's horrible. It's poisonous for the country. That's what toxic means. 
And uh, it gives you a good example. Mara Gay, who is on the editorial board, I believe, of the New York Times. She's a, a very distinguished, prominent person at the heart of the liberal establishment. Uh, she basically ripped uh, at least 70 million Americans, which is not, it's just not a smart thing to do. Uh, when she said this, this is clip number 10. What exactly is this hold that Trumpism has on some portion of the American people that their representatives are coming to Washington and acting amok in this way? Uh, as Mika said, whether it's, you know, ignorance, um, stupidity or or graft, you know, something more nefarious, I don't know. Um, but one thing's for sure is that the integrity of the FBI, the integrity of our institutions um, really remains and endures despite these attacks. And so I think that is heartening. I, I think she's right about the integrity of our institutions. But to say that, OK, let's see, she gave you four choices. Uh, basically, if you were uh, a pro-Republican, pro-Trump American, uh, then you were stupid, ignorant, uh, a grifter, or no, nefarious, or all of the above. Uh, this is a very bad idea. And it's especially striking when, when you look at one of the stories that I think is deeply encouraging, but uh, is something that got almost no coverage, is uh, the story, as reported in the New York Times on page A17, so it's not, doesn't make the front page, but it, it could. And uh, the lead says a Democrat who represents part of Atlanta in Georgia's House of Representatives defected to the Republican Party this week saying she was subject to a campaign of intimidation by one-time political allies after breaking with them on school vouchers, a good, strong conservative issue, uh, policing, uh, which should be not just a conservative issue but a human issue here in the United States, and prosecutorial oversight. Mesha Maynor, who is a two-term representative from the 56th District in Fulton County, announced she was switching parties during a news conference outside the Capitol in Atlanta. Republicans now have a 102 to 78 majority in the Georgia House. Uh, Ms. Maynor, who is 48, is the first black woman to hold office as a Republican in Georgia's state house, according to Stuart Bragg, director of the Georgia House Republican Caucus. Her defection recalled the political estrangement of another former Democratic lawmaker in Georgia, Vernon Jones. Remember him? He spoke very well at the Republican convention last time in 2020. Uh, he is a Republican who was endorsed by former President Donald J. Trump in his unsuccessful run for Congress in 2022. In 2021, Ms. Maynard was one of three Democrats in the House who backed a GOP bill that curbed the powers of counties to reduce funding for the police. The measure was signed into law by Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican. She also sided with Republicans this spring on the creation of a state oversight commission that has the power to investigate and remove local prosecutors. Why? Because they're prosecuting the wrong people? No, it's because they're not prosecuting at all. Uh, 
they're basically trying to follow that, uh, quote, enlightened idea of crime, meaning uh, go easy on them. Uh, At the news conference uh, this week, Ms. Maynard said Democrats no longer shared the values that had drawn her to the party. Members of the Democrat Party have publicly slandered me in every way imaginable, she said, and that is part of that toxicity that we were talking about. Why would they slander her? Because she disagreed with them about school vouchers or about policing. Uh, Democrats disavowed Ms. Maynard uh, on Tuesday as a rogue lawmaker and pledged to challenge her next year. Good riddance, Josh McLaurin, a state senator from Fulton County, wrote on threads. Now, this is a black female Republican now. And can you imagine if, uh, I mean, a Republican saying that about, well, good riddance? Uh, because uh, given the fact that she is the first statewide person in the state house. Uh, to identify as a black Republican female. Uh, When Ms. Maynard won a primary against two other Democrats last June, with 65% of the vote, she did not face an opponent in the November election in 2020-2022. It's tough sledding for Republicans in Fulton County, which Joe Biden won with 72.6% of the vote in the 2020 election. So what does that mean? What that means is that this woman... Uh, has courage because if she is uh, representing a a district that is in a county, Fulton County, which is a heart of black Atlanta, where Joe Biden got 72.6% of the vote, she's not doing this to get ahead politically, right? She's doing this because she believes it. And I think she deserves some recognition and some praise. And uh, and when it comes to taking other positions that it seems to me deserve respect and praise, uh, Tim Scott, another black Republican and a black Republican who uh, one of his opponents has decided that his uh, way to the presidency is going to be to attack Tim Scott, which is an indication of how well the Scott campaign is doing. Uh, But uh, he said this about, as president, what his job would be regarding abortion. Uh, This is clip 11. We should celebrate the fact that our states are creating a culture of life. As president of the United States, I believe my job would be to stop the radical left from having abortion on demand up until the day of birth. I say that because the Democrats in the Senate today have voted for late-term abortions. I would start with a limit of 15 weeks on abortions, federal limit of 15 weeks. We have to create the culture of life so that I can sign the most conservative pro-life legislation that can get to my desk. Neil, here's the truth, though. A 15-week limit today would not pass through this Congress. The 20-week bill that we worked on, the pain-capable bill, never saw the light of day. As a matter of fact, Chuck Schumer and the Democrats won't even allow any pro-life legislation. 30 weeks cannot pass this Congress today. 
And part of the idea of the 15 weeks or the 30 weeks of any of it is to communicate the values. 95% of abortions are in the first trimester or before 15 weeks. We will be right back on the MedVet Show. Are you feeling tired as you're... rather see in a cage fight uh, uh, to the death, a Texas death match, or however you want to describe it, would you rather see Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, who have both been talking about it seriously, which is just, um, you want to invest in a company uh, that, that is run by some guy who thinks it's a, a good idea to to have a a, a cage math uh, ultimate uh, fighting duel? I mean, especially Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, does he look? I mean, he, he's obviously exercises, and I'm sure he's in good shape. But does he look fearsome, Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, okay, and then then. You come to uh, an even more inspiring matchup. Uh, what about Trump versus Chris Christie? I mean, Trump versus Biden is not fair. Biden is a little bit old for that. He's 80. Trump's old for that, too. He's 77. But, um, okay, Pierce Morgan asked the question, and uh, he was interviewing Chris Christie, and uh, their interchange sounded like uh, this, number six. Talking of fighting, if you and Trump got in the ring, he loves his UFC and stuff like that, right? If you got in the octagon, you and him, who'd, who'd win? Come on. Guy's 78 years old. I'd kick his ass. <laughs> um... I, you know what? What's interesting is it sounds like Chris Christie actually wants to do it, and you know, you've seen I'm I think, or I certainly have seen some of the video of Trump taking on Vince McMahon as a promotion. This is before he was in politics, when he was just a the uh, bashful billionaire. Uh, no one's ever called President Trump bashful, uh, but. Uh, Trump and Christie, what would the betting odds be, do you think? I uh, I mean, obviously, it's not going to work Trump and DeSantis because the age difference is just too much. Chris Christie's 60, so he's 17 years younger than Trump. Uh, Chris Christie, in what you just heard, misstated Trump's age. He's not 78 yet. He's 77. But uh, meanwhile, th there's also another bitter, nasty fight brewing in Iowa in particular. Uh, this is a report from uh, The Messenger. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is trying to reassure donors and activists that his campaign only looks stalled, according to a campaign memo that his team has sent around. So they want people to know this. The memo says that DeSantis is focused first and foremost on the early voting states and is planning to attack Senator Tim Scott. Why would you attack the most likable person in the whole presidential field? 
uh, the one who people have the warmest and, and uh, most affectionate feelings about. This comes amid reports that donors are considering his candidacy and uh, considering shifting their support from, uh, from Ron DeSantis to Tim Scott. DeSantis' team doesn't consider other candidates like former Vice President Mike Pence and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley to be a threat right now, but they are obsessively worried about Scott. Across the DeSantis political universe, there is heightened awareness of the importance of the early states and the reality that he will burn out without strong performances there. Never back down, the super PAC supporting the Florida governor's bid remains committed to running a nationwide ground effort the outside group is preparing to insert 80 freshly trained field operatives into California. DeSantis' campaign tried to emphasize in an email yesterday that the GOP presidential primary remains a two-horse race. It's just him and Trump. But the reset is on. DeSantis is looking to alter his media strategy, and he is reportedly considering whether to start doing interviews with mainstream media channels. The Florida governor has almost entirely shunned these networks, instead sticking to Fox News and other conservative media outlets. DeSantis' campaign is preparing to use its vast war chest, right, they have about 80 million right on hand, to reignite his presidential bid, one that will involve recruiting pastors as surrogates in each of Iowa's 99 counties. At the center of this effort, the campaign's in-house marketing team that has created an algorithmically message-tested 14,000 ads. Doesn't that even give you a headache just to hear the phrase 14,000 ads? This is 14,000 different ads and related variations on Facebook and other social media platforms to Curry supporters and convert them into donors and voters. Uh, meanwhile, uh, some good news for the DeSantis campaign. In Iowa, a state Senator Jeff Reichman, who is uh, one of the leaders of the Republican Party in Des Moines, in the state capitol, defected from Trump and endorsed DeSantis after the former president <laughs> uh, verbally attacked the governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds earlier in the week. Uh, and and now the eight presidential candidates are one step closer to actually making it to the debate stage on August 23rd. That is, if they all agree to, uh, even if they do it with their fingers crossed, to say, I'm going to support the nominee of my party. Uh, candidates must hit at least 1% support in three national polls. Trump, DeSantis... Pence, Haley, Scott, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson all made it. So did uh, capitalist Vivek uh, Ramaswamy. All passed the threshold in one poll. And the amazing thing about that, and uh, I, I, I do think it is amazing, is that Vivek... Ramaswamy, who's basically attracted attention because of some fairly radical proposals like raising the voting age to 25, which uh, probably is not the best way to 
uh, win over some of the younger voters that the Republican Party has a problem attracting. But Ramaswamy is now running third. Isn't that amazing? He passed Mike Pence. Mike Pence has 7% support. Ramaswamy has 8% support, which means that if he does uh, a stellar job in the debates, and he's a very bright guy, and I think he probably will do well in the debates, but then again, it's it's kind of... Uh, Chris Christie has built up his own aggressiveness uh, so much as such a subject... It's hard to imagine that somebody's going to upstage Chris Christie in those debates. Uh, also, there's this from Tim Scott. He was on Fox News with Neil Cavuto, and he was very clear about what he's not trying to accomplish with his campaign. This is clip five. Well, Neil, the one thing I, I never correct you on TV because you're so so good at what you do, but I, I don't think everybody wants me to be the number two. There, there are some who want me to be the number one. And so I'm going to continue to run this race for one objective. It's to be the president of the United States. I did not enter this race to come in second place. Second place is the first loser. From my perspective, the only way to run for president is to do it 100% of the time. And all we're focused on is making sure that the next generation of stories of the American dream make mine pale in comparison. We are the city on the hill, Neil, and we must remain the beacon in the midst of the storm. Okay, there is um, uh, uh, Tim Scott, who um, apparently is going to be a new target for uh, Ron DeSantis, which is <laughs> probably not, not a great idea. What Ron DeSantis needs is uh, not more targets. What he needs is more allies. Uh, this is extraordinary. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is running in second place for the Democratic presidential nomination. And yes, of course, it's very likely that barring some kind of health emergency or him bearing too many teeth uh, on um, <laughs> biting affectionately toward little girls, a President Biden is going to be the nominee. But Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is uh, blaming someone other than Vladimir Putin for the war in Ukraine. Uh, who does he blame? Uh, we will get to that. We will also uh, be speaking to Ian Bremmer about the future of NATO, the future after the war, and most of all, how does the war end? And what can any American leader do about it for this greatest nation on God's green earth?